All right, welcome back everybody to College Football Unmasked, brought to you by the Daily Sport Network. We have three of the four here this week. We got Andrew, Jameson, how are y'all this week? Doing great, well, man. Doing great. I'm pretty good, man. Not a lot of football, but we have a lot to talk about considering Heisman's coming, we got playoffs coming, and I know y'all are both excited about the draft tonight for the NBA. Absolutely. Andrew, actually, you know what? Let's let's talk about that to begin first, right? Because you you know that. Just give us a brief synopsis of what you're looking forward to tonight out of this NBA draft. Tonight, um, it's not a star-studded draft, but I think there's going to be a lot of value in role players throughout the draft. A guy like Tyler Halliburton is probably going to be the biggest steal, if you want to call that, of the draft. Um, but like I said, not a lot of star potential, but throughout the draft, you get role guys for competitive playoff teams. So I think that's going to be the main takeaway from this year. Yeah, any any worry about the kid that got the foot injury they're reporting on today? Who was that? Ooh, I think it was – I'd have to look I think it I up. saw that, but I can't remember the name. I yeah, saw. I, was, I think I saw it, and it was only like two to three weeks. Who was that? Was it Precious Achua? Yes, I think so. I like Precious Achua a lot. He's going to be – in my mind, Montrez Harrell with a three-point shot in his perfect world. So I like him a lot. He's a high-energy defensive guy. Not the traditional size of a five, but can guard that position. It wasn't. It was Onyeka Okungwa. Okay. Yeah, I've covered him out in Vegas. He's, he's also that kind of smaller center, I think around six foot nine. Uh, he'll be fine, though. He's got really good footwork inside the paint, really strong uh, paint player on offense and defense. So he'll be good. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and get to some college football news because even though there wasn't a whole lot, there was still some interesting games to talk about that have some really big implications. And I think one of the games we were most intrigued by last week was Notre Dame and Boston College. We thought Notre Dame would handle it, but Boston College is a sneaky good team. They have a knack of making it a game. And look, Ian Book was impressive. He was 20 of 27, 283 yards. Where Did you all get to see this game, and what did you all think? I did get to see it because I texted you earlier. I went four and one on my bets from last week. The one I missed was the Boston College cover because I had them plus 13 – or I had them plus 13 and a half and they lost by 14. They screwed me by half a point. Half a point. Um, you know, you put on the script, have we undervalued Ian Book? That was an interesting point because I went and looked back at his stats and a lot of his numbers have been pretty similar throughout the years, especially a sophomore year is pretty comparative to what we're seeing right now. But the biggest number that jumps out is interceptions. I mean, throughout 10 to 13 game seasons in 2017, 18, 19, he's had six, seven picks, and I think seven again last year. And this year he's got one through eight. So I think it's just a lot better decision-making, higher IQ football, and he's just playing smarter as a quarterback. Yeah, and, and not only that, but um, – and, and maybe I just keep hammering this point on Notre Dame. But, I mean, they keep getting the job done. And, you know, it's not these flashy, like, big blowout scores that you see a lot from, like, Alabama and Clemson and things like that. Um, I mean, it's 14 points to Boston College team and Boston. Um, so I don't – I can't really tell if I'm buying in fully on this Notre Dame team, but something does seem a little bit different about, about them and about how they play. And, um, again, how they're not flashy, but they, they just consistently keep getting the job done. Well, you know – it's funny because a few weeks ago, I, I remember we had a conversation of one of the things I didn't care for about Ellinger. And it was, I basically felt like the Texas staff was using Ellinger like 
the Bills try and use Josh Allen, right? The difference is, is it just wasn't working out like that. And they, they asked Ellinger to do things when the game was already out of hand that just, it didn't make sense. And I'm not saying Ian Book is Josh Allen. What I'm saying when I mean this is he's winning by any means necessary, right? Like it doesn't have to be with 300 yards. He might not have the best stat game, but up until that fourth quarter, when the plays need to be made, man, he's got an act of making them. And that's why I wanted to ask you this right here, right? Remove Notre Dame from the equation, right? How, what is Ian Book then? Because I know all of us are kind of questionable on Notre Dame, right? And I think respectably so. But take Notre Dame out the equation. Let's put Ian Book on a Florida and Alabama and OU. And what do we think he is? I think he's a game manager, probably at most. I mean, the last few years, he has made it harder on himself, like I said, with the interceptions. And one interception through eight games this year, he's obviously taking a large toll off of himself, making it easier to win football games. So excluding the Notre Dame part, it makes him a more game-winning, ready quarterback, if that's even a thing I could say. Um, but I, I think he has improved this year heavily, and he'd, he'd be good pretty much anywhere you put him right now. Yeah, and, and I, I think he would be in that game manager to maybe just above average echelon. I don't see him, you know, if you switch him to Kyle Trask, I don't see him also putting up Heisman-level stats. Um, but, you know, I, I think the system works well for him. And, um, again, it's it's not like he's putting up monster stats with Notre Dame. He's putting up good stats that, that work on a on – a, well, so far from what we've seen is a great football team. Um, and, and so he's, he's getting the job done. He's doing what he needs to do to put Notre Dame into a good uh, position to win. And like Andrew said, if he's cutting down on the interceptions as well, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, obviously winning the turnover margin um, in your games is massive in dictating what the score is going to be at the end of the game. Yeah. And I don't think that he would ever be what Mac Jones or Kyle Trask is. And in fact, I think before this year, probably a lot of people would have equated Ian Books to Mac Jones, right? But Mac Jones has just been really, really good, right? Um, the same with Trask. I think if we were talking two quarterbacks that have probably improved their draft stock, those two guys have got to be in the conversation for the most. We'll get into that conversation That's later. True. But I'm, I'm, I might just be a little bit higher on Ian Book than both of you. And the reason is... Maybe it's because I'm so low on Notre Dame, right? That I just have to wonder, like, man, what would Ian Book be if he was on a different team? I don't think that he is Trask, and I think he is a game manager, but I think he's a game manager in the same capacity that maybe a Jake Fromm was a game manager, right? And Jake Fromm sure. still put up some nice numbers, no knock on him. But, I, you know, that's about where I put him, is about that Jake Fromm range. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like I said, he's made smarter decisions this year. So I think anywhere you placed him in the country, he may not. If he goes to Florida, he's not going to play up to Kyle Trask, but he, I think he still wins football games for you. I think so. Yeah, and, it, it, and it's in that good, not great echelon that, you know, whenever he's got the right pieces around him, I mean, he's going to win. And that's what Jake Fromm did his entire career at Georgia is, you know, a, a, granted he couldn't ever get over the hump and, you know, beat Alabama um, and, you know, win, win the SEC outright and make the um, – the national title game, but you know, it, it worked for, for what it's worth. And especially with Notre Dame being an ACC um, already having a win under over uh, 
Clemson under their belt. Um, I I don't think you can ask for much more from uh, Ian Book than what he's done this year. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, speaking of other quarterbacks in the ACC, because this is something I want to get to, Miami played this weekend, and Derek King was coming off of a massive game the week before, right? And last week I asked the question, is Miami back, right? And I think we all agreed that they're fun, right? But it's too soon to tell because this is Miami. They kind of do this regularly. But they barely won against Virginia Tech. So where is Miami reasonably? You know, when I look at Miami, I kind of view it from a Texas fan standpoint. So I try and put myself in the shoes of being a Miami fan. I think you just have to be grateful that you're at least fun. At least you have De'Aaron King back there putting up fun numbers, doing cool things on a football field. And you may be winning games ugly. You may be barely beating Virginia Tech. But you're still a top 10 team in the country for a significant portion of the year. And if you're not that, you're still ranked. So things could be a lot worse in Coral Gables. And I think that's just kind of where you have to view them right now. Yeah. And, you know, we, we already saw what they've done against top level competition this year. I mean, they got, they got smoked by Clemson. And then you look back at their last few weeks. I mean, they're barely pulling out games against, you know, average teams in the ACC, if not below average. Um, so granted, I, I don't think we can sit here and say that Miami is back, even though they are, you know, seven and one, eight and one, something like that. Um, and then also um, sitting in the top 10, but being behind, you know, two great ACC teams, um, it, it kind of makes the, the rest of the road hard for them. I mean, obviously their, their college football playoff chances are basically zero, um, you know, and they, they still got to get past UNC, which I think is a, um, a real question mark for them on if they're even going to be able to win that game. The rest of their games, they should be fine. I mean, they got Georgia Tech, Wake Forest. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't know if it's, that big of a deal playing those two teams, but playing like they are in these, you know, little one score games. Um, yeah. I don't think that's going to work against UNC and their, their high powered offense. Yeah. I feel like Miami is probably, and I want to get y'all's opinion on this. I feel like Miami is probably a little bit closer to being where they want to be than a Michigan or even a Texas and maybe not from a talent standpoint, but from an actual direction. Like, I, I feel like the way when you look at how they're recruiting, they have an idea in mind and they're going with it. Whereas when I look at Texas and Michigan's recruiting, it's almost like they're just shooting a shotgun in the dark and whatever hits, hits. So that's, I, I think they're a little bit ahead of Texas and Michigan, but I don't know how much further ahead. I couldn't agree with you more. The direction and idea of where you're going is exactly it. Because from a Texas standpoint, it's always been, let's bring the culture of Texas back. You know, we're going to play the old way. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. That's not really anything. That's just kind of saying something, but not actually following a direction. Texas has been the opposite of going in the same direction since really the latter half of the Mac Brown era. So I, I do respect that the most out of Miami, that they are going in a direction. Whether that's going to work out or not, at least they're going for it and they're committed to it. You know, and, and maybe it's a dumb metaphor, but if you're looking at these programs from just an overall football standpoint, um, and like you said, the direction they're going in, it seems like in terms of Michigan, uh, Texas, and Miami, whenever they get into a fork in the road, you know, Michigan and Texas, they kind of, they stall and, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what they want to do. At least Miami's like just kind of going at their curve and they're, they're constantly like moving forward on it. 
Whereas you have these Texas and Michigan teams that are also, you know, big markets, you know, college football's awesome whenever they're back. Um, but they're, they're not really sure of what they're doing. And I, I think that's a good way that um, you put it at time. Yeah, because look, Miami's fun, right? So Miami, to me, if I had to give a team, they're not as good. But y'all remember that Chip Kelly Oregon squad that was just very fun? To me, they're well before that squad became the national championship-esque squad. But they're in the process and the building blocks of building something high energy, fun, based off of freaky athletes. Because when you look at their recruiting classes, then they've got some really special guys on that team. I'm talking Al Blades Jr., right? I mean, just an all-world defensive back talent. And then coming in this year, they have arguably my favorite defensive lineman in the class, Leonard Taylor. I've gone over his film with both of you guys. If y'all haven't seen it, check out my YouTube channel. The kid's phenomenal, right? His handwork and footwork is years better than where I think it was. And, you know, I think the turnover chain and all that is fun. And I think that's the difference is Miami is having fun, but they have a direction and it's disciplined fun Whereas Michigan in particular was always raw, raw with no real direction. And I think that that's what imploded. I will note before I pass it to Andrew that the turnover chains and all that started at the University of Alabama with the turnover built back with that 2015 <laughs> squad when they think, I think they went 12 games in a row with the defensive touchdown. Yeah, there had to be some sort of Bama come around to that. To, to the end of that right? Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> there just had to be. Um, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, they're getting the fun guys. They're playing fun football. They have the turnover chain. You know what that is? That's the U. That's that, what they do. That's When they are at their best, that's what they did. They were the cocky assholes that nobody liked playing against. Nobody wanted to win, but they won. And that's the U. And, and that's exactly what I was about to bring up is, you know, it's that arrogance that they had going through the 80s and the early 90s and early 2000s um, that they're trying to bring back. And I, I'll give them all, I'll give them credit. At least they're backing up with what their record says. Now, granted, it's not pretty football all the time, but they're they're at least backing up for now and they're they keep racking up wins. Yeah. And if they can keep recruiting the way they're recruiting, I think that they're going to be a really deadly team. I don't know what they do after Derek King leaves. Right, because right now, so much of this team is based around his ability. And I'm actually intrigued because, you know, it's in the script. We're going to get to it. But there's a conversation we have to have as regards to these quarterbacks in college football and how much room is left in the NFL for franchise quarterbacks, considering how many great college football quarterbacks we have right now. But, Jameson, you brought up the other team that to me is is – kind of where Miami is right now, if not maybe a little bit further behind because of just length of trying, and that's North Carolina. Sam Howell is really, really good. I don't know much about the rest of that team outside those running backs. The running backs are incredible. The defense is so shaky, it's unbelievable. But Sam Howell is phenomenal. What did y'all think about You know, I could almost argue that they're ahead of Miami for the simple fact that this is Mac Brown's second year and look where they're already at. They already reached a top 10 ranking. They already have a Heisman hopeful quarterback. I mean, you can make that argument that they're ahead of them. Granted, it's the same case of what happens when De'Ara King leaves, but what happens when Sam Howell leaves? Um, Sam Howell's young. They, sure, sure. But, and they did 
and they did replace Mitch Trubisky with him a couple years later. So that's something you have to be hopeful for as a UNC fan. Um, but like you said, don't really know what there is outside of the out of, outside of Sam Howell and the running backs. I do like some of the wide receivers. They have some speed and athleticism on the ends. Um, and I mean, we talked about their offensive explosive explosiveness earlier, and we talked about um, Miami having to play them. I said it last week. I'll say it again. This is the one game left on Notre Dame's schedule that I am not 100% sure about. I like Notre Dame. I think they'll win that game. But if you let Sam Howell sit in the pocket, you don't get pressure on him, he might just mess around and drop 500 yards on you. He did it this weekend. He might just do it. Yeah, and, and not only that, I've – granted, we're, we're not really talking about, you know, Mac Brown being on any sort of hot seat. But this has always been my philosophy when talking about coaches that are on the, the hot seat or whatever. I don't really know how you can put many coaches on that spot whenever they haven't gotten a full like recruiting cycle in. Uh, if they haven't been four years, you, you know, you at least gives them a chance to recruit players, let them develop and see what they turn into. And, you know, Mac Brown, like you said, he's already ahead of the curve. I mean, he's in year two and he's already gotten, like you said, the, ten, the top 10 ranking. Um, granted, they aren't putting it all together yet, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But I, I think, you know, you give them another year or two, I think they're going to be in a really solid spot in the ACC. And the ACC is going to be incredibly competitive with, um, you know, the direction that Clemson's obviously not going anywhere. Miami's coming up. Um, Notre Dame, who knows if they can, you know, carry this over and if they're even going to join the ACC long term. Um, but, you know, you, uh, I think this development in the ACC and, and um, getting these really top-tier teams in there is great for college football. Yeah, and look, here's what I mean when I mean Miami is ahead of North Carolina in their rebuild. It's just they've been doing it longer, right? Sure. So they've kind of already kind of carved this path of this is who we were as the U, and we're going back to that. So they already have a blueprint Whereas Mac Brown, he's got a blueprint, but it's from an entirely different institution. And now he has to implement that. So while I think that North Carolina is ahead of schedule in the aspect, maybe more ahead of schedule right now than Miami is, when I mean Miami's further ahead, I just mean as far as the culture they've been able to implement because this rebuild has been a long one. You know, the Miami rebuild is not new. Now, here's, here's I think you both hit the nail on the head. That's why I've been trying to talk so much about North Carolina, because you're both right. It's all new. Mac Brown is new. This team is young. The, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago how they have a corner who should be a senior in high school who's out there starting. And not only that, they got a five-star defensive end coming in this year as well. I mean, this team is going to reload. Sam Howell will be there. Now, how do we fix the consistency, though? Because that, to me, looks like it could be the biggest problem. And that could be a really damning problem for recruiting and all of that stuff. I think the solution has to be Mac Brown. As, as simple as that sounds, if he's the coach that is going to bring them back, I mean, this is his second stint with UNC, if he's going to be that coach, it's kind of on coaching. Consistency is coaching in a lot of ways. It's recruiting. It's finding the right guys, putting them into your system, and letting them go. So I think, I think that's also a time thing. It's only a second year. So by Sam Howell's senior year, we may see a very finely tuned North Carolina football team. No, absolutely. That's exactly what I was about to say. Is it's, I really think time is going to be the biggest factor um, because not only that, but we, you could argue that, you know, 
Carolina is actually in, you know, year one and a half with COVID and everything being able to um, shut down facilities, you know, alter kind of recruiting and how that stuff goes. Um, they're, they're, there's not the longevity there and you still have guys from the old coaching regime that are still, you know, in there and trying to mesh with everything that's kind of going on um, as far as getting a new system and a new way of doing things implemented. Um, so, you know, I, I really do think by the end of next year, we're going to have a whole different conversation about where UNC is at um, and consistency wise and things like that. So, so let me go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, you. <laughs> All right. Cause I think we might be, I was about to ask y'all if y'all could rank some of the most exciting teams that aren't there yet, but you like where they're going, where would you place UNC? I'm going to stick with Maryland because that's been my pick since well into the summer. Um, and I've been telling Andrew that I really liked Maryland, but I know they're not close, but they're exciting. Andrew, who would that team be for you? Maryland's up there for me, but honestly, it might be UNC. Just a little bit of the Texas bias again, because I those Mac Brown years for a while were so sweet, and I think he can do it again. Uh, so I, I guess I'd have to go with them. I mean, you could almost make a case for Notre Dame now. I, I know that's not really like a comeback team, but it's coming back to prominence to a different level of notoriety. So, and I, I think there's a there's a few teams for me. In all honesty, I mean, Indiana. Um, I, I really like the way they're trending in the Big Ten, especially with the way that Penn State's fallen off, Michigan's fallen off. Um, you know, the door is almost open for them to kind of swoop in and, you know, be that kind of that team that's right behind the Ohio State um, and the, the Wisconsin's that's in there. Um, but I think Indiana and Oregon as well. I think Oregon's um, – I, I know we've talked about them a couple times over the last few weeks. Um, they, they've done fantastic when it comes to recruiting, developing NFL-level talent. Um, and things like that. I, I think we'll see both of those teams really start to um, gain some traction over the next few years. I, I just thought of a good one, Arizona State. Because of how Herm Edwards is developing players down there, turning them into NFL prospects. I mean, once you've got the blueprint of turning guys into NFL-level players, the rest just kind of does itself for you. And I, I think there's my, maybe a game, no game this week I'm more upset that isn't being played than that Colorado-Arizona State one. Arizona yeah. State dropped the first game they had, they're in a must-win position, not only for their season, but for recruiting. And they're going up against a Colorado team that's well-coached, has some good talent on it, but is also winning their first game and is looking to prove something. Arizona State, to me, is interesting because I've told you I really like their quarterback, Jaden Daniels. Freshman last year, yeah. when the moments were the brightest, was phenomenal. I think that's a really good pick. Yeah, and I actually had one more question to pose to you all. So the degenerate wheels in my head were turning with the Miami-UNC talk. If you're placing a future bet on either Miami or UNC right now, the first one to win an ACC championship, who are you putting your money on? Oh. Granted, neither of them may ever win an ACC championship with this level of Clemson football going on, but for the sake of conversation. UNC because I think that Miami is very good right now. They have a lot of good young talent, and they have two five stars coming in that are all world on the talent team. If we if we're not talking about position, if if football was basketball and we had positionless basketball, these two guys might be one and two in the nation. I mean, freaks. Yeah. The problem sure. is is there's no Derek King next year, 
And so then I'm yep. left with this shaky structure of where are you going to go with the most important piece on your team? UNC doesn't have that issue. They'll have a five-star corner who will be more developed. Oh, and they're getting a five-star edge rusher with an experienced, experienced coach. I'd have to put my money on UNC. I would agree. I've got to stop. I've got to stop talking last because uh, all, all these words keep getting taken out of my mouth. But, <laughs> you know, you know, D.R. King, I, I think that's a great point. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Sam Howell still has at least another year under the program. I mean, he, he could come out early. He could be one of the top picks in next year's draft, the way he's trending. Um, but, you know, when, when you're trying to build a program and you need a field general, you, you can't necessarily, unless you go on some crazy run like what Oklahoma had where they just kept getting guys in that were, you know, constantly Heisman-level talents. Yeah, and, and Clemson as well. If you get, keep getting guys that are, you know, Heisman-level talents or even not even Heisman-level, just, you know, great quarterbacks that work at the college level, it, you, you have a great shot. And so um, we, we really haven't seen what's coming after Derek King for Miami. And so I, I think based on that alone, I mean, you've got to go UNC. Yeah, I, I agree. Andrew, what about you? UNC? I'm, I'm with y'all. I'm trying to think of a devil's advocate argument for Miami, but I really can't think of anything. Uh, the only thing that comes to mind is if Sam Howell does leave a year early and Mac Brown can't find that replacement, then what does UNC do? Because you mentioned the edge rusher coming in, you have a corner, but the defense is still a little shaky. Good ground game, but if you don't know anyone throwing to your athletic wide receivers, it's kind of tough. Plus, Mac Brown's not getting any younger, let's face that. I have the devil's advocate argument for you. Okay. okay. You and or Miami has proved to be able to pull in big level recruits at a more consistent basis sure. that UNC has. And not even in a recruiting standpoint, but also as a transfer, transfer standpoint, they had Tate Martell who was incredibly highly lauded coming out of high school transfer from Ohio state yep. to there. Now look, Tate Martell didn't work out, but they still got him right. They still have the clout to be able to get, graduate transfers or transfer quarterbacks there. Now here's the argument against UNC is do you think that Sam Howell will be able to upseat Clemson and Dabo Sweeney within the next year? Because in all likelihood, Sam Howell isn't staying until his senior year. He will have had an impressive freshman campaign, a very solid sophomore campaign, and you don't stick around to put four game films of Clemson so that NFL scouts can really start picking you apart. And at that point, does Miami have the ability to attract a more highly level signal caller than UNC in a faster time frame? That's the devil's They advocate. do. They 100% do. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Look, hey, and you know me. I'll play devil's advocate with anything and everything. And I <laughs> I was trying to think of a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> that's, that's the devil's advocate argument. The crux to that is you're also taking out of the factor that you brought up a good point that Trubisky didn't work in the NFL but he was an NFL guy right and now they have Howell who will probably be a first rounder that gives North Carolina two first rounders when most programs don't have that this this decade right not and I don't mean in 2020 I mean from 2010 to 2020 very few programs have that so that is something Mac Brown has to kind of be like okay well sure Miami's the U I'm Mac Brown and I've done it all the time. So yeah, that's kind of the crux to that. You know, the interesting one I want to talk about moving to the Big Ten, you brought up Indiana, Jameson. Indiana has been very good. And 
you know, that didn't stop this weekend. What are you thinking about Indiana going forward? Uh, they played a bad Michigan State game, Michigan State team. But like I've said before, I like Penix Jr. a lot. I like the Indiana team a lot. They're one of the funnest teams in the country to watch right now. But this is the week. This is put up or shut up time because they have Ohio State this week. And if you want to be a big name in the Big Ten, that's the name you have to be. Yeah, and, and I think it's really going to say a lot of about their character and, like, who they are as a football team, seeing what their measuring stick is this week. Because, obviously, Ohio State's at the level to where they can win a national championship game. Um, and so seeing where the, they measure up against them, I think it's going to be interesting. Because if you look at their resume, and they've only played four games, but they've already beaten two top 25 teams. Now, granted, one of them is a Penn State team that since their number eight ranking that started this season is absolutely atrocious. Um, and it's the same thing with Michigan as well, where Michigan's just on a constant decline. So I don't know how much weight we can put on it so far. But, you know, the, this week against Ohio State, I, I think it's going to be a fun game to watch and just to see where they're at um, in terms of being able to compete in the Big 12 or in the Big 10, sorry. Yeah, that's arguably the game. I, I don't think there's any argument to it. That's the game of the week, in my opinion, because there's really not much else going on after that. Uh, Big Ten has two really big games this week. But that's going to be the, you know, the test to where they are. They're an insanely fun team with an insanely fun quarterback and an insanely fun story. Ohio State is Ohio State, right? Like, they're kind of the big bad wolf, and they're, they're here to, you know, ruin your day. Justin Fields is Justin Fields. I don't know how you stop him. I don't know that you can, right? I think maybe it's just how do we stop the receivers and the running back and then kind of let Fields be the tertiary we worry about because nobody's really been able to neutralize him to a super effective method, not without being just as talented, if not more talented than Ohio State. Now, I think this is the one I can't wait. Michigan get smoked by Wisconsin. And it's not like Wisconsin's quarterback had a good game this time either. Very pedestrian stats from all of Wisconsin. In fact, I can argue Wisconsin didn't play a very good game, and they still destroyed Michigan. What's left there? Are we just watching the inevitable at this point? Yes, it feels like we're just going through the motions of, all right, when are we going to get this over with? Um, on the Wisconsin side, I liked it because, like you said, they didn't put up crazy stats. Uh, Mertz didn't do anything that special, but they won the game. They won the game handedly, and that's kind of – that's the game you need to win like that in order to be taken seriously. Um, in terms of Harbaugh specifically, I've been trying to think of who else they can bring in. I'll throw this out there. Oregon hasn't paid Mario Cristobal yet. If I'm Michigan, hey, here's a trillion dollars. Come save us. <laughs> Here's everything we have in the bank. <laughs> you know, and I, I think – I will say I think Michigan is in a better spot than Texas, and, and here's what I mean by that, Ooh. is at least Harbaugh recognizes he has his faults. He, I believe he had a quote earlier this week where he had said, you know, this game's on me. At the end of the day, like this, these kind of losses and this kind of thing, is that, that's on me as the head coach, whereas Tom Herman – you know, he keeps kind of running circles around it. And I don't want to say necessarily denying that there's an issue with Texas and that things need to be improved on. Um, but he's almost like redirecting the finger pointing to off of him and not to where the program is at. Because, I, I mean, obviously, I, I know we keep talking about, you know, Texas and Michigan and where, where they're at. Um, but 
you know, I, I ultimately think this is the demise of, of Michigan, even though they really haven't done anything in the Harbaugh era. Um, but I, when your head coach is starting to already like, you know, say this is on me, things like that, that's, and you're a one in three team, you get smoked by Wisconsin who just hasn't played in what a month. Um, and so um, I, I, I don't know what, where, where to go for Michigan other than just completely scrapping the coaching staff and starting over. So here's what I'll say. Cause I don't know that I, I think you, you raise a good point. It's hard for me to tell who's further ahead of who. But kind of to push back, this is what I will say. And this is just the, the law that was just smacked down into me coming out, right? This is the moot court coming out of me. A serial killer is still a serial killer, no matter whether they admit their faults to your face or stay silent about it. They're two sides of the same coin. The results are analogous. And because of that, I understand what you're saying. Like Harbaugh is owning up to it. and Herman is Herman, right? I think Herman's hubris is too much. No, I do give you points. Harbaugh's hubris has always been huge, and this is kind of the first time where I think he's gotten very introspective. But I don't think being introspective is fixing the problem because I think at the end of the day, he created the problem. And it's too big to fix at this point, much like Herman created the problem. Whether you acknowledge the problem or not, I don't know if it can be fixed by either of these guys, right? Like, and that sucks. Billy Napier is interesting, right? Because Billy Napier is doing a lot of good stuff with Houston or with Oregon, with Houston. Um, I'm sorry. Billy Napier with Louisiana is getting his name in a lot. And the reason I'm bringing him up is because both South Carolina has been rumored to get him, but that's another one, Andrew, to watch for Michigan to get is Billy Napier out of Louisiana. Mario Cristobal is awesome. I get them confused because they both came from the Bama staff and they both left roughly around the same time. Um, And both of them are looking like really, really good coaches. Now, you want to know what's interesting about that, Andrew, is at the time, Josh Gaddis was from Alabama. And there was kind of this feud between he and Cristobal that he thought Cristobal was taking much more. um, It was Cristobal and Loxley. Gaddis felt like he was much more responsible for a lot of the success at Alabama's offense than, you know, people were giving him credit for. And he even thought that he was more a part of it than coach Loxley was. He goes to Michigan and he's now their offensive coordinator and we see what Gaddis is doing at Michigan. Turns out he needed those guys to kind of mask him at Bama because, good God, that's un- – yeah. hey, if I'm Loxley, I'm laughing at his face every time I see him. And if I'm Cristobal, I'm not even picking up the phone. Um, I was going to say, do you even laugh? I don't even think you acknowledge him. <laughs> if I'm Loxley, I do because I'm just going that level of petty. You had to put my name in saying I wasn't the part of it. Like, what? <laughs> Come on. Fair. But Mich- yeah, I like – screwed yeah they know they are i liked your point of uh, a serial killer is a serial killer whether they admit it or not because i mean if you're picking between michigan or texas already that sucks but i will take texas because of the fact that they at least have the marquee wins instead of getting blown out by a wisconsin team that didn't put up any impressive stats at least you have an oklahoma state win a west virginia win you went from being a top 10 team in the country 
flattened out to unranked and now you've gotten yourself back into the top 25. So I think there's at least a little more pride left at Texas. There isn't a direction, there isn't a long-term plan, but in the present tense, there's a little bit more pride and a little bit more to be excited about. Yeah. And you know, Michigan has just degraded to such an extent that I don't really know where they go from here. So on the other side of the aisle of the big 12 from Michigan's terribleness, we have Northwestern who's undefeated to this point. Fitzgerald looks really good as their head coach. I mean, I've been high on him. And look, they don't win sexy, but they just get it done. So do you think Northwestern could win out on their side of the division? No, I don't. I'm sorry. I know y'all are a lot higher on Northwestern. I'm just not high on them. I don't know if it's the fact that all my life I've watched Northwestern football and there hasn't been a smidge of excitement around them or maybe it's the fact that they're not playing sexy so it's hard to get excited about a team that's never really shown any true progress in the Big Ten but I just can't really get behind them however if they get a win this week I'll throw my hand up I'll leave my words whatever it is but I just I can't buy in I don't know why no and, and absolutely I mean they're they're a 4-0 team but their last three games they they've won by one score um, and, you know, they, they had the big win against Maryland earlier in the year where they, they just blew them out of the water. But, again, it, it's, a sa- it's a really similar situation to what Indiana is in this week where it's, you know, it's a good measuring stick to see where they're at in, in comparison to the other, you know, traditional powers in the Big Ten um, and see what they can do. Because, obviously, you know, putting up the same type of numbers and things that they did against Purdue and Nebraska and things like that, now, I don't think that's going to work against a Wisconsin team. However, if they get past Wisconsin, I don't see any reason why they don't win, win out on their side of the, the conference. And look, this is a team that has won and gotten to the championship on their side of the division before. Northwestern is a team that I think a lot of people kind of undervalue because to me they're a little bit like Stanford, right? Stanford plays such a pure traditional brand of football that it's almost very easy to look over them when there's a 5-0 and Stanford team and a 5-0 and USC team, but USC has Slovis throwing for 400, 500 yards a game, and Stanford is doing it very traditionally. I don't think Northwestern is in any position to, you know, challenge Ohio State, anything like that, but I think that this weekend's game will be very interesting. I can't wait for next week to talk with you about this because I really think that Northwestern can squeak out the W. Now, this is a subject that I didn't think I'd be talking about, quite frankly, for years to come, and that's James Franklin and Penn State. Penn State drops another game. Not only do they drop another game, they lose to Nebraska. I don't care how bad you are, so oh, is God. Nebraska. Nebraska's <laughs> yeah. bad, too. Right? Yeah. That's an equal playing field. And you lost on an equal playing field to Nebraska. I'm a Franklin fan, but is he on the hot seat? No, he can't be on the hot seat. I mean, this this week, don't get me wrong. Oh, my God, that was bad. I mean, what was it, 17 or 20 to 0 Nebraska at one point? They made a little bit of a comeback to only lose by a touchdown. But, holy crap, that was bad. <laughs> I, I really don't think he's on the hot seat, though, because at the end of the year, you can always come back to COVID. Hey, it was a weird season. Didn't have the normal amount of time. Didn't have the normal season. My guys weren't ready, so I don't especially with what he's done the last few years, there's no way you can fire James Franklin after one year in this COVID season. 
Yeah, and, and absolutely, because if you look at Penn State's track record and his record with Penn State, it's it's nothing like what we're seeing um, from him this year. Um, and so, you know, he, he can pull out that COVID excuse and just be like, look, we didn't have the same amount of time as everybody else. We had the same issues and, you know, whatever. Um, so hot seat, no. But if this trend continues in the next year, I think that's whenever there's going to be some serious talks about what's going on with um, him and Penn State. Look, I don't want to agree with y'all, but I do, right? This is something where I want to be more upset at than I am because every other coach in the nation has that same excuse. Oh, COVID, right? But they're making something happen, and you're not. I think, Andrew, you'll remember this. Over the summer when we were talking about Herman and you were asking me if I thought Herman would get fired, I said that I thought COVID had cooled the proverbial hot seat for Texas football. I think the difference in Herman and Franklin is Franklin has earned himself goodwill by consistency in seasons. Herman has never put a consistent season together. He's had big games, never consistency. Penn State might lose one game or two games to a good Michigan or a good Ohio State. We expect that, right? It's almost like a normal LSU team that's very good that might drop one to Bama and one to Georgia. I mean, you're a bad team. You're a great team. So I really want to disagree with y'all because this is unacceptable, right? COVID or not, every other coach is going through the same damn thing. But I I agree with y'all because Franklin's a hell of a coach. And I think that's why I'm this upset. If you were a, you know, a B minus coach, have at it. You're an A-plus guy. You're an A-plus level coach. That's where I'm just like, what's up? Honestly, I'd even go as far as to say whether we were in a COVID season or not. If this is a normal, regular college football season, he's still starting out like this. I still don't think he's on the hot seat, frankly, because of like, like you said, the goodwill he's earned. If I'm Penn State, I believe in him enough to say, all right, bad year, Let's see what happens next year. Now, if the next year comes and it's more of the same, he's out midway to the season. But I think he has earned plenty, plenty of goodwill to stick around. Yeah, and, and absolutely. When you look at the track record of him just consistently finishing in or around the top 10 um, the last few years, I, I don't think you can really judge him off of – or I don't want to say judge him, but base what he can do off of just this one year. Um, and, and so I, I think – you know, if, like I said, if the trend continues, I think it's a different discussion next year, but um, that, that kind of just remains to be seen. Yeah. Like I said, this is one where I do want to disagree, but I can't. I, I, because there's no, you, there's no logical sense in getting rid of him. And the question would be asked, well, who are you going to get? And I don't like any name in the coach. Look, I love Mario Cristobal. I love Billy Napier. I don't like them like I like Ben or – Franklin and if he is like a school like Texas oh my god come on over James (laughs) instantly now I don't know if he could survive a non-COVID year this bad right like Uh, 0-4 losing to Nebraska on a non-COVID year that's bad right but on a COVID year I do I do agree and hey Nebraska got the W. (laughs) 
granted in a non-covid year he'd have some cupcakes on the schedule to start the year so they wouldn't be 0-4 absolutely um and and they would have longer to kind of figure it out and finish near around maybe a little bit above 500 so yeah and yeah look i i agree there's no way they fire him they'd be stupid to fire him it'd be absurd yeah, anybody that would point out that this season is unacceptable, even with COVID, and that's that's also a fair point, right? This is one of the times where, fans, you can be as mad as you want as long as you're not calling for the head coach's job. If you're stopping everywhere short of that, I'm like, cool, you've earned that because this is crap. But it's also Franklin, and he's brought you through a lot. Speaking yep. of coming through a lot, the Pac-12 fought through every known battle in existence in, you know, trying to get a season going. And most of their games were canceled this past week, which is super unfortunate. You never want to see that. Hopefully everybody's getting healthy there. Well, let's talk about some of the Pac games we did get to see. What do you all think about USC? I didn't think they'd be this good this year. Honestly, I didn't. I didn't either. Honestly, you could almost make the case they they could just as easily be 0-2 as they are 2-0. I mean, yeah. with the comeback win this week. But I love Slovis. I mean, you and me talked about it last week. I love him for USC specifically. Um, I mean, I think they have Utah this upcoming week, correct? And it's Utah's first game of the year. If I'm Utah, I'm terrified because, number one, you're playing Slovis, and that's hard enough, and you're playing a USC team that's 2-0 now. But your first game of the year, you got to walk out there on defense and deal with a guy who's throwing it 40-plus times a game. That's just hard. I don't care who you are. That's difficult. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, it was, it was Arizona's first game of the year. So, I, I mean, I don't know how – if I'm going to buy too much into the USC hype. But I think they're a good football team, and especially for the Pac-12, where there's nobody really other than Oregon who's kind of, like, separated themselves as being, you know, a a, um, a power in the, the Big 12 – or in the – the Pac-12 consistently, um, I, I think UNC, USC is a, a good team, but, you know, what's it, it kind of depends on what happens later in the year against Oregon for me to know if, you know, they're the real deal or not. I don't know if y'all have seen some of those pro football focus grades, and I don't know how much stock y'all put into pro football focus grades. I don't oh, a lot. consider it the Bible. So you might put mm-hmm. a little bit more. I put – I don't consider it the Bible, but don't get me wrong – I. Whenever it's draft time, I have the pro football focus rankings and I start watching film. And if they both add up, right, if I'm watching the film and I'm like, yeah, this grade I think makes sense, then we're probably good. Oregon has a lot of guys on defense, highly ranked on that pro football focus list. I mean, damn near their whole secondary are highly regarded guys. And that, that freshman linebacker, did y'all get to watch the game this week? Yes, I did. <laughs> I've been sure to watch him, yes. <laughs> He's unreal, man. Like, he really is. On a field where they already had one of the freakiest defenders in college football, Kayvon Thibodeau, right? Like, now when I'm watching Oregon, my eyes used to stay on Kayvon Thibodeau because he stood out like a sore thumb, like he's a freak. And now I forget Kayvon Thibodeau's on the field not because he's took a step back, but because this kid is unbelievably good. So, scale of one to ten, how sad are you as a Bama fan that Noah Sewell's not wearing crimson red? <laughs> very, but also not very. Look, I don't know how real it ever was. We didn't get his brother, right? And like, right. followed his. But brother. I mean, that kind of 
that kind of high-level defensive player, typically you see him in the SEC. Whether it's Bama or not, you'll see him in the SEC. Definitely not the Pac-12. But you want to know why I'm happy he went to the Pac-12? Because not only did he go to the Pac-12, not only did Justin float, because you got, y'all got to remember, Noah Sewell was the number two rated inside linebacker in last year's 24-7 sports rankings. Justin Flo was the number one. Now, I think schematically where Flo plays in middle linebacker, they already have a veteran guy. But from everything I'm reading, Flo is really showing that he's going to be an absolute dominant force when he gets on the field. They already had those two, but then they pull a five-star corner as well, number 22 in the class, I believe, last year, and they already have Kayvon Thibodeau. The reason I'm not upset is because that's going to make the pack better. That will inevitably make USC better, and football is better with more parity. And right now, my biggest worry, I'm an Alabama fan, but I worry about the future of college football because parity is not happening, right? The rich are getting richer, and we're just hoping that there's a leak in talent. So speaking on the parity aspect, I don't know if y'all saw what happened in the Pac-12 day with non-conference schedules. Did you guys happen to see that? No, I didn't. So the ADs of the Pac-12 talked together and approved the fact that they could play non-conference football games this year. It still has to be approved by the presidents of each university. But with how many games have been missed already, and it's not – it doesn't mean that, hey, we're going to play non-conference games, but it's, okay, if we miss a game right here, if this team can't play, we can go schedule a non-conference. So speaking on that parity, let's say Oregon's game in two weeks gets canceled and Oregon goes, hey, BYU, hey, Cincinnati, let's play a game. That, that immediately gives BYU or Cincinnati the recognition and the resume they need. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great point. It would be a, a great thing to see in college football and seeing, you know, some of these lower level teams that um, may not have the certain level of hype behind them yet just because they are, you know, they aren't in the power five. Um, that that's interesting. I would I would be excited to see what happens with that, especially with how PAC, the Pac-12 is already trending to where there's so many games that are just getting canceled consistently. No. I gave you my answer as an unbiased college football fan, right? Like I gave you my answer there as, as it is. Both of you know I'm obsessive about my Alabama football. Anybody who's listening, unfortunately, you can ask these two. There's not too many things I don't know about Crimson Tide football on any weekly basis. Who's playing? Who's got the hot hands? Who's looking good in practice? I've been very blessed to actually get some good connections like Ricky Green from Touchdown Alabama Magazine. Him and I have been messaging back and forth about Trey Sanders, running back who is in a car crash for Alabama, who's looking good. But, hey, they got a running back right there right now, Jace McClellan, who was a five-star right out of Texas here in Alito, who got hurt his senior year, didn't get to play. Now he's at Alabama, who's looking really, really good. But the biased Bama fan in me, Andrew, is screaming on the inside <laughs> when I watch no because man he's he's different like he's really different man like he could be yeah. something very very special you don't see guys built like him move like him the, the closest no, I can think of is Zion like in just raw <laughs> just it shouldn't work out the way it does body build to athleticism ratio. He looks like the fastest guy on defense. Like he legitimately stands out as the fastest guy on the field at 250 pounds. Like that's unreal. 
Yeah, I would love him in Crimson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But, I mean, like the unbiased part of you said, I think it makes the Pac-12 more interesting, which I like a lot because outside of Pac-12 after dark, I haven't had a strong draw to Pac-12 football since probably the latter half of Chip Kelly when the Oregon kind of fell off a little bit, kind of teetered. Um, so I think it really does help the conference. Yeah, you know, the Pac-12 needs some help. I think Oregon is their send right now. Oregon is their godsend. Slovis and USC could be as well because USC is necessary, right, to the building of the Pac-12. It can be done with Oregon, but it's going to be much more difficult. It's like you could rebuild the Big 12 with Oklahoma State, but it's going to be much more difficult yeah. than if you had a great Texas team to really resurge the parody there. But talking about the Big 12, let's go there because they didn't have a whole lot happen this oh. weekend. I don't even think we need to talk about the weekend and review there. Texas Tech, uh, Baylor, what was that, a one-point win? Yeah, one-point win. And then, uh, I think for Tech. I think was tech it a one-point for Tech? I think Tech won. Yep. Yeah, I think yeah, it was, was 24 choices. Okay, yeah. this Lexi is getting to me. And yeah, then, the, uh, the goal line tackle. Yeah, that's Thank right. Um, yeah. West Virginia just smoked TCU, which that doesn't make much sense. But you no, know, who knows the TCU anymore? I don't know what's going on at TCU right now. Yeah, I don't either. Look, they got a five star transfer, Marcel Brooks, in from LSU, right? And already, and he's coming in from the defense. I'm thinking that's great. You need all the defensive help you can get. You just lost a corner. You just lost a receiver. And then they get five-star running back Zach Evans. I'm not in practice. I don't know what's going on. Zach Evans hasn't been featured too, too much. And they're really bad. They are terrible this year. And, you know, it's sad we didn't get to have Denzel on this evening. He'll be on next weekend. We're going to do a little bit of a special episode for him. But I'm really excited to get to talk to him about TCU football right now and kind of where he sees the path. Because I'd imagine Gary Patterson is smart enough to get them out of this. He's a brilliant head coach. Um, he, that's an interesting head coach. What do y'all think about Patterson? That's exactly, that's exactly where I was about to go because it feels so weird to me this year because I think he is the second longest tenure in Division I football right now as a coach. I think he's the second longest tenure. So it seems like in such a weird year where everyone's dealing with this COVID thing, TCU should almost have a leg up because they're so established as a program and with their identity with Gary Patterson, but we're just not seeing it. And I don't really know why. I don't know what the solution is, but it's really odd. Maybe it's just a Big 12 uh, contagious thing. Everyone's catching it. I don't know what's going on. Again, I don't know. Maybe it is time for a change of scenery for him. Um, but if you're TCU after just getting a couple of five-star guys and, you know, having the longevity in the Big 12 that, we're, we're kind of expecting a little bit of, you know, turnover if, you know, Tom Herman does leave Texas. Obviously, it's going to take Texas a year or two or three to come back if they ever do. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the fix is for TCU. Um, you know, they, they had a momentum win against a top 10 Texas team earlier in the year, but they, they just keep dropping games left and right to teams they, they really shouldn't be losing to. I mean, I don't know how you explain it. I, I don't know how you go from beating top 10 teams to then losing by, you know, almost 20 points to West Virginia. Yeah, and, and it's, they're, they're playing puzzlingly bad, right? Like it's, it's just bad football right now. And it's interesting because I've always regarded Gary Patterson as one of the best 
evaluators look here's the bias in me saying Nick Saban's the number one talent evaluator in college football right like you don't get to be the number one recruiting class I think he held that for seven straight years you don't have that without acknowledging and developing and knowing how to develop because look you know there's always the argument that Skip Bayless loves to say that when you get that many five stars of course you're going to look good Five stars have an average national draft percentage chance of 24.3% at any institution. At Alabama, it's 53.8%, well over double the national percentage of being drafted as a five-star. Gary Patterson's arguably number one or number two on that list. Gary Patterson is a guy that will take a three-star, two-star quarterback and turn them into an all-first-team Big 12 safety, linebacker, corner he sees talent differently, which is why I'm so surprised that out of all the programs that are struggling, it's TCU. They're established, like you say. They, they have all these things going for them. And it seems like this is the year where they're the worst. They're, they're, they're playing the worst football I've seen TCU play in a long time, regardless no, of what record says. I agree 100%. I, and like I said with Penn State, at least at the end of the year, you can chalk it up to it being a weird year and get back to work next season. You hope. You hope. But, you know. That's the saving grace. That's all you have. Yeah. Right? Speaking, keeping in the Big 12, because there's actually a really interesting game. And I was kind of going back and forth into which conference was conference of the week as far as can't miss football action. And I ended up giving it to the Big Ten because I felt like they had more consistency in their games. But OU, Oklahoma State, that's a huge game this weekend. OU is sneakily in position to regain driver's seat of the Big 12 with a victory this week. What do we think about this game? Yeah, Bedlam this week. Um, I mean, I said last week the Big 12 has turned into, okay, that was cool. What's on next? That's how I feel about this. Even if OU does take first place in the Big 12, what does that really mean? I, at the end of the day, it's what I think they're 18th in the country now. I mean, it's great pride coming back from where they started because it looked really bad in the beginning of the season. Um, and I mean, the saving grace for either of these teams is at the end of the year, if you beat Oklahoma State or you beat Oklahoma and you're the other team, it's a pretty successful year and it's something to be happy about. But in terms of the grand scheme of college football, it just doesn't matter a whole lot. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, if Oklahoma, you know, does beat Oklahoma State, then they have the wins over Texas and Oklahoma State, which are, you know, the kind of the next two teams that you would um, have even competing for the uh, Big 12 championship. But like Andrew said, I mean, what, what's it going to matter? Because then you're still going to have a two-loss Big 12 team that's having to compete with, you know, even these undefeated group of five teams. And then not, not to mention any of the teams in the ACC, SEC, um, or the, the Big 10. Um, so what does it really matter? I don't know. I mean, uh, all it would recruiting. do is give Oklahoma, yeah, recruiting, yeah. give Oklahoma, you know, another big 12 title under their belt, but in terms of actually, um, winning the, the big game for this year, you know, the national championship or even getting in college football playoff. I don't, I don't know what all it does. No. It, it, it really doesn't move the needle for me. Not, not in that aspect. To me, it's intriguing because the big 12, is in such a weird place right now. And there could literally be a, a, you know, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but an eternal swing of power 
eternal being eternal in college football, which is usually a four to five year period, right? I mean, success isn't permanent in college football. Just ask my Alabama team from 2000 to 2007. That sucked. But OU to me, this is important because they have two five stars still looking at them very, you know, seriously. Amika Abuka, number one receiver in the nation, um, number two receiver in the nation, I believe, is still Ja'Cory Brooks. The number three receiver in the nation is Troy Franklin. Ironically, Amika Abuka is between Ohio State, Oklahoma. Ja'Cory Brooks is an Alabama commit. And Troy Franklin's going to Oregon, three institutions we've been very high on. But OU's also trying to get JT Tumalea, number one or number two player in the nation, depending on where you look, between him and Corey Foreman. Personally, I think it's hard, right, whether he's better than Corey Foreman. They're both freaks, right? Whoever gets them, certified freaks. That's why it's important to me, but not much else outside of that. I think you both hit the nail on the head. It's important just to show your recruits we can recover from being an absolute dumpster fire, and we still have a culture here. I think that's all it means. How how important that is, that's the real question, right? Like, Maybe I value that stuff more, and that might not be something that's truly, truly valuable in the grand scheme of things. I'm not really sure, though. All I know is the Big 12 is done, right? As a whole, oh, for, for a while, they're they're really in trouble. Um, and Texas, yeah. And Texas, no, unless OU can come back to power next year, which actually, now that you mentioned the culture aspect, it kind of makes me put a lot more weight on this game because if OU does lose this game, it's a lot more detrimental to the culture that's there and the overall feel of that program heading into next season. Um, it would be significantly better to have won, won this game next season than to have lost. Absolutely. And, and, you know, even if Oklahoma does come back to relevance next year, the Big 12 style of play just doesn't it, – it doesn't really work whenever you're going against the SEC powers, even the, the, the Big 10 or the ACC. Um, you know, really the only brand of football you can compare it to is the Pac-12. But if Oregon keeps trending the way they are with getting these defensive players and this defensive talent, I mean, we've seen it the last few years when Oklahoma gets in the college football playoff, they get absolutely smoked by whoever they're, they're playing. I believe it was Clemson last year. Um, LSU. LSU, yes. Um, and so, really, like, what what are you really competing for in the big in the in the Big Twelve? If all you're doing is the best you can do is get the four spot in the college football playoff and just get ran off the field and just embarrassed, um, it's happened a couple of years in a row now. Yeah, it's the Big Twelve is in such a place of fluctuation, and you know, I don't know what you do. I, I think the brand of football is a big problem. I think you hit the nail on the head because I think the big 12 as a whole outside of OU is losing out on recruits that the other conferences are getting because the other conferences are proving to be able to develop at a higher rate than some of your big 12 institutions. OU notwithstanding, right? OU pulls offensive talent at a higher level now than they ever have. And I'm not saying better, but just to mean that they never fell off in their recruiting of offensive talent that's there. But, hey, look, it's time to get to my favorite portion of the show, the SEC. Even though Bama didn't get to just smack LSU this week, the Puddle Kittens, that didn't stop the Puddle Kittens from still making news for all the wrong reasons. And this is something that I had talked about on my YouTube channel. 
back in about August, is that it didn't look good, this Darius Geis-Edo situation with sweeping sexual assault under a rug. Look, USA Today puts out an article, apparently, that it's much deeper than just Geis. It doesn't relegate itself just to that. And they have multiple issuances of Coach O just sweeping things under the rug. Consider this with the fact that LSU was just caught having a booster stealing money from a kid's cancer hospital to pay players. What does the NCAA do with LSU? Because I always feel like LSU gets caught doing some heinous stuff and they get kissed. You know, I agree. But in the year we're in and the year we're having with LSU right now, it's the perfect year to kind of lay the hammer down on them because it, it may not have a huge impact on the grand scheme of things with where we are right now, but it at least sets a tone and lets them kind of, kind of be heard by LSU. Does it, uh, I want to ask y'all, does it, do these allegations, things like that, are we getting to the level to where it's, you know, stripping of wins and possibly a national title? No, look, I'm never a big fan of that, right? Because what are you doing? You, you, you've effectively done nothing. You haven't fixed the problem. And when, when we're all talking about last year, are we not going to talk about the fact that Joe Burrow balled out all over everybody? Whether the NCAA wants to acknowledge that or not, it happened, right? And it's just like when we're talking greatest of all time coaches, whether they want us to mention Joe Paw or not, that name still gets thrown out because you can't delete that history. So look, I've, I'm not against punishing them in an incredibly harsh fashion. Don't get me wrong. This deserves punishment. I think Coach O's got to go. Because look, not only does the booster thing isn't indicative of Coach O, you could argue that that was just a rogue individual that did that without anybody else knowing. I hope that's the case right? Because that'd be some heinous, really heinous shit if they knew. The, the other thing to me that just stands out, and this is why I think I'm not the biggest fan of Coach O. I don't think he's that bright. He was in the offseason bragging about how his team was going to be great because they'd all caught COVID, so they weren't going to catch it again. Fast forward to this week, and my Alabama Crimson Tide doesn't get to whoop them because a bunch of their players went out to Halloween parties and they caught COVID. You were the coach bragging about how your team had built up an immunity. Now you look like an idiot. You already said that Dave Aranda was worse than Bo Pelini. That's football talk, but that was dumb as hell. You, you brag about your team getting COVID. That's dumb as hell. And now we have you sweeping sexual assault, multiple cases, not just against Darius Geis, but also domestic violence. There was a player who was caught beating, choking his girlfriend, and they notified Ed O. Nothing happened. They swept it under the rug. I think he's got to go. I am a trillion percent with you on the uh, vacating wins and championships things. It's it's one of my least favorite things the NCAA has ever done. Reggie Bush won the 2005 Heisman. I Absolutely. Care what everyone says. And Louisville won the 2012 Basketball National Championship. I don't care what anybody says because that happened on a court and on a field. You can't take that away. You can punish the program, but you can't you can't erase history that happened in a game. In terms of Coach O, yeah, he probably does deserve to be fired. But is the NCAA going to do that? I don't think so because there has been way worse shit in the past that they have completely just turned the other cheek on and looked away from. 
I really don't think this is going to be the end all be all of Coach O. Uh, absolutely. And it, it comes down to what LSU wants to do to sort of give their program the reputation that they want. A similar situation a few years ago with Art Bryles. And, you know, their, their first reaction was fire him. And people, you know, that was the first time Baylor has been good in a long, long time. Um, and, and so seeing what they did kind of just, you know, getting their information and firing Bryles on the spot compared to an LSU team that what we had thought had just came back to relevance. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's really any other solution than to fire um, coach O, but that's, that's got to come down to LSU and what they want to do to get their program, whatever reputation that they want to have. Yeah. I, I just, to me, the, the whole COVID thing really rubbed a bad taste in my mouth because this is a serious thing. A lot of people have been seriously affected by this and you're bragging that your whole team has caught it and you're going to be good. And now your whole team has it again. That to me just makes you look reckless. And if I'm a parent, why am I going to send my kid to a guy who's perfectly willing bragging about getting my son sick just so he can win some football games? Like to me is not that, that to me, that that type of attitude doesn't even need to be in college football because that's what we need to be trying to get away from is using people. So with the last few minutes, I want to talk about a few things. Alabama plays Kentucky this weekend. Look, all I'll say is watch this game. Kentucky's got a good quarterback. He's mobile. Mobile quarterbacks give Alabama problems, and Alabama hasn't played in two weeks. Alabama will win, but it could be a closer game. Now, looking forward to, you know, Two topics before we finish up. First, I want to talk about Heisman and Kyle Trask in particular, because I think that he may have put himself firmly first place in Heisman contention with this performance. Maybe him or Mac Jones. Where are we thinking with that? I said last week he was my favorite, and seven days since then, I have become irrationally confident that Kyle Trask can win Heisman. (laughs) I mean, if he keeps doing these numbers – I'm sorry, there's no argument for him to not win the Heisman. Mac Jones is incredible, and it is a two-person race at this point in my mind, especially with the games that Trevor Lawrence has missed and the fact that the games Florida missed are going to be made up at the end of the season, so Kyle Trask won't have that problem. Um, but it's a two-person race, and I think it's Kyle Trask's race. And, and I think what's really interesting about it, too, is both Trask and Mac Jones are missing their top weapons, and they're still putting up the type of numbers that they were. Because, I, I mean, Kyle Trask, I mean, Kyle Pitts uh, didn't play last week. You know, he, he had that kind of scary concussion, and then obviously Jalen Waddell's been out for a few weeks now. Um, and so I do have to lean more towards Trask, but it also is going to depend on what the, you know, kind of the end-of-season results end up being you know if Florida wins SEC I don't I don't see how you can put Mac Jones above him um but so this is what I'll know. say in defense of Mac Jones Kyle Trask has put up gaudier numbers but it's two totally different styles of offense mm-hmm. Mac Jones is beating him in every statistical category imaginable except touchdowns He's thrown less attempts. He's thrown at a 10% higher, I'm sorry, almost 15% higher completion percentage. That matters. One of them is fairly reckless with the football. The other one isn't. One of them is uber accurate. The other is decently accurate with massive receivers with massive wingspans. That matters. Mac Jones is also being crippled by the fact that he has a first round running back. I say crippled in the sense that the Heisman numbers are being lessened because he's not being asked to do half of what Trask is doing and he's still beating him in every statistical category except one. 
The other thing I'll say is he was only 30 yards off of Kyle Trask's Georgia numbers. But when Mac Jones played Georgia, they had Richard LeCount III, who's the best safety in the country, and they had two of their top defensive tackles who were both on hot streaks and sacks and rated by Pro Football Focus as top 10 guys. Kyle Trask never had to deal with that, and by the end of the game, Kyle Trask didn't even have to deal with a Georgia defense that looked like anything. That is my Mac Jones argument. The fact that I can tell you are so prepared and passionate about that is the exact reason that holy shit I hope we kick your ass in the championship because it would be glorious to watch you have to deal with that because I can tell by that rant that you kind of hate Kyle Trask no no he's great away from, not 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 that you hate Kyle Trask that you hate the fact that he's taking away from Mac Jones in the year he's having right now and I oh my god I hope we kick your ass <laughs> no look I when I give that rant, I'm not meaning that any to detract from Kyle Trask because he's been great. I'm, I'm saying it to kind of shine light on Mac Jones is putting up numbers that we're saying Kyle Trask is the you know reincarnation of Joe Burrow. That's what I've seen. Well, I'm sitting here saying, well, Mac Jones has put up better categories and everything except touchdowns while also doing it at a much better QBR and completion percentage. That's how Honestly, I... Statistics- statistically you can look at Trask and uh, Mac Jones right now and kind of make the argument they're on pace to have better years than Joe Burrow had. And Joe Burrow just had the best season in the history of college football. Now, before you get to your bets, Andrew, this is where I will say, I do have Mac is number one, Trask is number two. And if, if it's about a 1.5% difference between them, that's how close it is. Right. But I, <laughs> Roll Tide. So your degeneracy went four and one this past weekend. What are yes, what do you got for us this weekend? Ooh, this weekend, y'all know I'm not high in Northwestern, Wisconsin seven and a half. I really like the Wisconsin team. Something I wanted to bring up, I did not forgot about earlier. The Big Ten has a six game limit or six game minimum this season that to be qualified for the Big Ten championship and to make it to college football playoff, you have to play at least six games. If Wisconsin misses one more game, they're not eligible for that. That would be an absolute crime if they weren't included in that. So I just want to throw it out there. But Wisconsin seven and a half against Northwestern. If you're feeling iffy about it, throw a point on it, make it six and a half. Uh, Florida versus Vandy, sixty over sixty-eight. Trask is putting up stupid numbers. I mean, uh, Kyle Kyle Pitts is probably going to be back this week. The numbers are going to be even higher. The overs got to hit there. I'll bet Florida overs for the rest of the season. Um, Cincinnati minus six over the former national champ UCF main thing I took away from whenever I was looking at this uh, UCF gave up 52 Memphis and Cincy beat them 49 to 10 so give me Cincy minus six and then USC minus three versus Utah uh, they're not gonna be able to deal with Slovis putting up 40 plus passing attempts in their first game of the season so we have about a minute and 30 left a minute 10 it looks like so I'm gonna ask you all one question is it unfair to say that the Heisman is won in the SEC championship when Mac Jones and Kyle Trask battle each other? Because if they both have average human games, Justin Fields and um, Lawrence all of a sudden are vaulted. If one of them plays superbly, that might be your Heisman. I think it's fair. I, th- I think it could very well come down to that. And I think whoever you're backing, it's hard to argue that that game isn't the deciding factor. I think whoever has the better game in that and wins the game is probably the Heisman winner. Absolutely. And that, that's kind of what I had brought up um, earlier is just, hey, we've got to see how the season plays out. And if they meet an SEC championship, I think it's going to have a lot of uh, weight on what happens when it comes to trophy time. 
Yeah, I think so too. Well, y'all, as always, it's been a good time. Thank y'all for tuning in to College Football Unmasked. We look forward to seeing you next weekend.